Hello everyone, welcome to the latest episode of the See Me podcast. This series is all based around the journey of the social movement and all the amazing actions and impact that our volunteers and our partners have had around the country. This week our main interview is from one of our community champions, Karen, who has done loads of amazing stuff, including three nationwide tours for Time to Talk Day covering about 2,000 odd miles over three years, um, all crammed within a few days. She's also chair of our advisory board and has done loads of other great stuff, lots of interesting perspective on workplaces and things like that as well. Uh, Today I am joined as always by Dee. How are you doing? Co-host Dee. I'm doing good. How are you co-host Nick? I am doing good. We are, I will point out actually, because as we're recording this one remotely and I'm in my lounge and recently over the weekend did some decorating and removed all of the carpet from my lounge and I've just realised that I might sound really echoey so if I do, that's why. You do actually, I was wondering why you sounded a little bit further away. I didn't Mm, think you sounded echoey, I just thought you looked like you were in a waiting room. Interesting. Thank you. Glad you like the style. And that is the voice of Lynn, one of our social movement team. Hello, Lynn. Hello. I'm I'm waiting for my very underwhelming introduction after Karen's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, Karen gets the big the big props. She's and pretty you awesome. Guys, you guys are here as and well. And Lynn just turned up. <laughs> and Lynn is here to Lynn say Lynn supports that my... Karen to do all the awesome work she does. Exactly, and to point out that my very partially decorated lounge looks mm. a bit like a living room. Which what even colour is that sofa? Is that brown? It's, it's a not. It's sofa. a bit green though. That's that's. I'm gonna say that's the light of Zoom mm. more than uh, <laughs> light the, of Zoom. The, the, the light of Zoom. <laughs> I will send you a photo of it afterwards. It's uh, it, a lot of it's quite a nice brown, I'd and then there's greenish. bits where we. Bits where we drop KFC on it, which are a bit of a darker brown, which would are be fine. KFC still going just now? It was a while ago. Ah. And once once you've dropped KFC on a on a sofa, it's not the easiest to get out, especially this type of leather. It's not like the one that you can just kind of like get anything off it with any sort of. Anyway, so yeah, so don't drop KFC on your sofa. But what that part? Is... Truly, KFC's just chicken. That's just that's not sustainable. It's covered in grease. Mm, grease stains. Yeah, one of the is classic stains. Is your couch stains. the name, the, the colour of grease? I don't know. Mm, at least more than, more than I'd like is the colour of grease. Is all anyway, I, can say. I am here and I am, <laughs> and that is as yes. much as the welcome I deserve. Lynn is uh, the the most gracious member of the See Me team. Um, she brings a style, poise and finesse that the rest of us could only dream of. How's that? You failed to mention my hilarious emails, which no one replies to. Hmm, I did, but didn't I? But God, she tries. Lynn <laughs> tries. Lynn Pilkinson tries. So, yeah, chatting this week around various aspects of, of volunteering and the impact that around what Karen's done and some really interesting talking points that she brings up throughout her interview that we did with her and one thing that she talked about quite a lot was really the impact of being told to keep your mental health hidden um, she says that she was quite a lot in her lifetime and obviously it's a really uh, a lot of what we're trying to tackle what we're trying to encourage people with talking about mental health with speaking out and reaching out to each other's and being supportive and not being judgmental is so people don't feel they have to keep it hidden because it's not something that they should be embarrassed about or ashamed of and that keeping it hidden can kind of stop you from getting help as well it's obviously though something that that karen's experienced a lot of and she's not unique in that she's not alone if that didn't happen then we wouldn't be here and lynn you work with a lot of our volunteers who've got various amounts of stories and experiences and do different things have you found that that is a bit of a a common thing for them and for other people with lived experience that either wanting to keep it hidden or being told to keep your mental health hidden is something that that happens a lot i i think the very fact that we're a program encouraging people to talk about mental health suggests that there is a hidden aspect to it you know 
um, which is really bizarre because um, we do we we all have mental health. So how how do you keep that that hidden? And I think that that words that sums it up, isn't it? Hidden suggests that there's some sort of secret, and also that there's a part of you that you're not sharing with everyone, which is such um, a shame. There's a lot of effort that goes into that. Um, my background working in equalities, and we know the the detriment it is to people when they only feel they can bring some aspects to their lives and the extra added pressures, anxieties, that then there's a bit of your life which you do have to to keep to yourself. Um, I think it is um, across the board for a lot of people. Um, whether it's for all areas of their life, I think varies from people to people. Um, it might be that um, there might be times, places, people, people are more comfortable sharing their experience of mental health with. But yeah, generally, I think this part of, of being in the context of um, the COVID situation as well, um, to recognise that mental health isn't a part of all of our lives would be a really, um, I guess, a really confusing statement for anyone. People that I have spoken to who haven't maybe spoken about mental health before, um, feel a bit like I'm not doing okay today then for me I almost find that a bit reassuring that they're not a robot and that yeah that they are having struggles like the rest of us um but for the more wider the more wider prevalent parts of life um for people who do experience mental health and it is out with this situation um mental health problems and the challenges that go with that then yeah, that extra effort that goes into hiding that from people and denying that um, is really painful and adds, and adds, as we know, to the experience of not only experiencing a mental health problem, but adds that extra level of um, challenge to an already um, difficult situation. It does, and it's not... You don't kind of need the extra the stress and the worry when mm. you are struggling with something when something is mm. could be causing you pain as well to then have to think oh god I can't tell anyone about this exactly uh, which and as we say like the, the stigma and the discrimination which comes with mental health is can be harder than the the experience itself of the problem which is a reflection of course of us in the society definitely like do what do you think around that and the, what's the impact of, on people of being told to keep your mental health hidden? I think we know that, you know, that the inability to talk about something usually makes it worse. So I think for a lot of people, you know, being told that they're not allowed to talk about it, that they're not able to express how they're feeling, one has the potential to, you know, as we said, increase that self-stigma, which makes people less likely to open up and ask for help in the future. Um, but, you know, also people then become afraid to, to, to kind of reach out and ask for help. And that kind of then can lead into problems getting worse later down the line. Um, you know, for many different reasons, i.e. they, you know, they don't feel able to discuss it with an employer. So, you know, their work performances may be, you know, not, not as great as, as they'd like it to be. And then the, the fallout that happens from that, or they potentially isolate themselves from friends, um, which kind of in a social aspect can impact on someone's life massively. They may not feel able to speak to their family, which can cause problems there as well, or even just simple things like going to the GP and getting the help that they need and deserve and the support that they need and deserve um, requires people to feel able and safe and confident to talk about their mental health and how they're feeling and that's the only way we're really gonna you know get to a point where one we start to tackle stigma across the board in all these different settings and two you know come to come to a solution where by people are getting that the, the help that they need it all comes down to feeling safe and comfortable to open up the self-stigma um around that um then i don't know um whether from, from being told to hey i don't know if if many volunteers, um, and I'm, I'm not sure whether Karen touches on this as well, that um, you, you're overtly told, but I think people, also stigma can come in really subtle ways as well, can't it? So whether just being saying that's not welcome here, or is it a more a fact of people just being met with silence, being met with discomfort, being shut down, um, not being invited to things because you aren't, 
in a, the right headspace for people um, or as fun as you used to be. I think through that, that is something which um, a lot of um, the volunteers do face in that, it, again, we, we talk about the subtle forms of, of, of the stigma and discrimination as well. It may not be as avert as it, as it once was, or but there are there are there are circles in which people maybe feel um more comfortable to be their full self and for me that is such um the bit about being um, kind of um not creating a space to invite people to talk about what they've either either been through or are going through currently is such a loss of um richness and individualness individuality and authenticity because I have like all these motivational quotes around um my house and a lot of the people who are yeah are the strongest are the ones who've got the most interesting stories to tell and by asking them not to open up about the hard times we're asking them not to open up about the things that they probably learned the most from had the most empathy from got gained the most resilience from so we are potentially shutting down that beautiful diverse tapestry of life experiences and so yeah for me it's just such a shame for the individual but also for the society that they don't get they aren't open to learning about that that wonderful life experience which although painful has, has made people who they are by making someone feel as though they can't talk about an aspect of themselves or something that's impacting on them that how much that can sort of shut down and deny a various amount of experiences that could really help others and could enrich loads of stuff and it's it's not something that's particularly thought of I think it is the self-stigma that you've touched on there is a big issue and if you are struggling and you're told you shouldn't tell anyone this although it's something that you should be ashamed of you should keep to yourself then that is going to have a huge impact on your self-worth and how you see yourself as a person if there's this thing that's impacting you and you shouldn't tell anyone because no one else wants to know that's going to kind of especially if it starts young and then goes on throughout your life it's going to have huge ramifications on how you see yourself and think of yourself because you're always going to worry about that judgment from others and then potentially judge yourself on the back of it as well and that's why it's so important um when you're younger that people are encourage or people are encouraging young people that it's so we say a lot it's okay not to be okay but there is meaning behind those words although they can sometimes get a bit lost when you say them so often and like you say that that how that opening up is is received is so fundamentally important because let's just like compare two responses one i'm really struggling right now or i've struggled in my past or experienced this and someone, yeah, could say, well, okay, but I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't know how to respond to that. Um, that's not appropriate. Or you could have someone that responded and said, it's really interesting. Tell me more about it. What did you learn? Share that with me. Who are you now? What changed? And um, for me, that that's the kind of environment which we do, we work on, we work with our volunteers to create. Because by them talking, they know they give permission to other people to say, yeah, yeah, I I experienced that, or I've learned this, and you see that light when we bring them all together. Um, when they're brought together and not seen, say, as a problem, a hidden part of their life, but when you, when you bring people together who for that cause, and they say it's suddenly a comfortable environment where they know they're going to be received with, oh, I went through that too, or oh yeah, that happened, and it's just such a different attitude change. And for me, seeing that among our volunteers makes you realise what's missing in the outside world, that that just positive reception. Yeah, totally. We've seen it in with our volunteers a lot. We've seen it and we've done campaigns online like Past the Badge and Mind Filtered Life, creating these areas where people feel like it's like it's safe to talk they will be supported that they don't have to worry about saying it and they'll find other people who've had similar experiences and make them feel not alone as well and with our kind of volunteers and with with other groups and with people around the country if you can meet other people who've been through similar things do you watching the power of that is being able to kind of meet other people who've also struggled with their mental health when it comes to them wanting to tackle stigma or do something 
I think, you know, it's got a huge impact on A, how you develop your own confidence and in, in speaking about um, what you've experienced and kind of learning how to do that and the language that you can kind of use to express how you're feeling and you know whether that's digitally connecting people online or whether as you said it's you know social social contact um, as our volunteers do when they go out and about to events. but I think it just it lets people know that they aren't alone it kind of gives people the the catalyst to be like okay well if these guys are talking about it and they're they're proud to talk about their experiences and you know they they're confident to say actually no I, I you know I wasn't okay or I'm not okay um but here's you know what I'm doing to kind of get through that and and to open up and um kind of tackle stigma I think that can be hugely empowering for people who maybe just never considered that it was an option before um I think you know even when we do campaigns the fundamental basis of everything we do is that we put lived experience at the heart of that and so that you know those voices are coming from from the very core and they're real and people can see the people behind the stories and relate to it and and connect to it in a way that's like oh actually I've been through that too and this person's talking about it and they're getting a great reception and you know so maybe then I can do that or oh they they said that this is what's helped them and that's kind of how I could maybe broach that conversation with my family or my friends or um so I think kind of just galvanizing that kind of social movement and that you know lived experiences is at the heart of it and and it's real and you can empathize and, and it's compassionate and I think it just kind of is a huge driving force for not just our volunteers, but for people that engage with us on social media, people that engage in our campaigns. Um, yeah, it's, it's fundamental. And speaking of driving force, <laughs> the time to talk. <laughs> See what tour. I did there? <laughs> yeah, but I guess it's <laughs> that is one. <laughs> do, 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 do. That oh, was driving Miss Daisy, by the way, if anyone didn't. Oh, I, I no, thought I that, that was reference. maybe a theme tune that you come up with for me, which I've been kind of waiting for. for we a need while. a jingle. Oh, was... Yeah, well, maybe that, oh no, because that's copyrighted. That's from the film Driving Miss Daisy. Well, everyone check Bigger. out Driving Miss Daisy and <laughs> Driving Around yet? Scotland. <laughs> is something that Karen's done with one of our other volunteers, Susie. But yeah, as part of Time to Talk Day every year, Karen takes on a lot of what we were just talking about there on the the difference it can make when someone speaks about their mental health and their mental health problems and the stigma and discrimination they've faced. If someone you hear someone speaking about that, you can relate to that, you can see you're not alone, it can do so much for for people who, who can hear that, who speak to someone and, and encouraging them to speak out themselves and Karen and Susie do that in this amazing way for Time to Talk Day. So Time to Talk Day, if you haven't heard of it before, is the first Thursday of uh, every February. Uh, so this year it was the 6th, next year Time to Talk Day will come up on the 5th of February, if my day maths is right and there's no leap years. And the idea is just try and encourage as many people around the whole of the UK to speak about mental health on that day. If you already speak about it, to carry on. If you've never spoken about it before, before for that day to be a starting point, to then go on and talk more after that. And it's something that we do with our partners across the UK, Time to Change in England who started it, and then Time to Change Wales, Change Your Mind in Northern Ireland, and, and Sea Change in Ireland. And we always see so much energy around it. And before the day itself, Karen and Susie, for the last three years since we've been involved, have gone on Time to Talk tours, which have varied between 500 and 700 miles each, I think, where they've stopped off in different places to go and talk to different people about the country. Lynn, what did they do this year? What did it involve? They had this wonderful little um, map, which they drew at the end, um, which showed all their destinations. Um, this year, um, 2020, um, they, they picked a few, I think it was shopping centres mainly, and then I, they also picked out a, a couple of, like, of interactions with a couple of volunteers based around the country as well and stopped in and saw what they were up to and took um, a, kind of, a little kind of whiteboard out with, out with them, a blackboard, um, for people to respond to what makes um, talking about mental health difficult. And... What I, I and they did it around. I think was it Dundee, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Aberdeen as Ab- well. I think yeah. Yep, and they Aber- kind of took the theme Furness, of this year. Gretna. In Burnett, of course, where, where you are right now, Dee. 
<laughs> took the the theme, didn't they, of what of would you rather, and they got people to choose which route they'd rather than take every day, which did. led them on a much longer journey than they could have done. I'm going to say that's my like, and they had really positive engagement in each of the kind of the places that they went to. Um, with the actual conversations that they had with people. Um, lots of emerging themes came out that were similar around um, um, across nationally about why people weren't opening up or the struggles that they had. They gave out campaign packs, they got people talking, they got people galvanated. And I mean, I could say that was a highlight because, yeah, of course, that's exactly what we're trying to do. But for me, working with volunteers, the highlight definitely had to be um, Karen and Susie's attitudes in that they brought the Would You Rather theme um, and that their ongoing, just humorous engagement, um, I think, was just a joy to support and added real, um, a, a unique asset to what, what could be, yes, a very serious subject. We're asking people to open up about something which is, can be quite personal, quite difficult, quite stigmatised, quite uncomfortable but they laughed by god they laughed and when i'm having catch-up conversations with them and they're like lynn we we're having a debate in the car we're getting people to vote on what the nickname for the and i mean it brings personality and life and you can see the videos from them and for me that in itself um lived experience doesn't mean to say that mental health is all you talk about lived experience can be laughing in cars um, it, it just brings that dimension that you can have experienced something but it doesn't define who you are and for me yeah that was just a, a real joy a, a part of their tour that they just they took a theme they made it live they brought their personalities to it and yeah for that bit not only did they not hide um, mental health but they also just brought a full authentic self to what they were doing and that's just um, yeah a joy to support it is, and if you ever, in in years to come, see Karen and Suzanne out on the road, it's definitely good to go and chat with them. They do bring so much energy. Dee and I visited them a few times on in the last couple of years on the tour and gone and met them in places that have been really cold um, and unusual yeah, places oh, as well. That was, remember that? We were where we went to Stirling Castle and then the Kelpies, mm-hmm. and it just rained the entire time. And Nick and I, it was like, our our first visit out and we were like Ugh. and Karen and Suzanne had been doing it for a week and they still had so much energy and people loved it they loved it yeah they did and do you think um one thing that Karen mentioned in that because part of the the first tour they went on culminated in them visiting Nicola Sturgeon at her office at, at Holyrood and talking to her about time to talk day and the tour and all the issues around mental health stigma and discrimination and one point that Karen mentioned when speaking to me which was really interesting is you never know if you have a conversation with them you you might not be an immediate change but how something might resonate for days weeks years to come and when it comes to them she was like maybe when it comes in the future Nicola Sturgeon thinking about something they she might go oh I remember that conversation I had with those two and and it might influence later on do you think when we talk a lot about talking about mental health and that uh, that we ever that we consider or people in general if they're talking about mental health consider that really long-term impact that they might have on speak with speaking to someone i think it definitely is um maybe not first thing people think of when you're talking about mental health you think you're there to listen empathetically non-judgmentally um hopefully provide that response which we spoke of before which people when they are opening up recognizing that that might be really important to them and and giving them the kind of due recognition for that but for me the long-term impact is having all those small conversations and the culture that that creates then that's the long-term change so I think you're right that some people can have and when I was thinking about this that can I remember one individual conversation that might have changed someone's life? Well, maybe, possibly, you know, just, just do. But I mean, <laughs> I think the general, the general um, permission that hopefully as part of our work we give people to talk about mental health, that's the long-term impact itself. So... Um, surely we want to get to a place where the long-term impact is that that one conversation is so um, part of everyday life that 
it doesn't have to be impactful. It's just what we do. Um, so for me, the long-term impact is normalising, is making what we do underwhelming and not being like, hey, that one time that person really accepted me when I opened up. That should be our, our new, that, that should be the way society is, surely. Definitely. And I think a great future tagline is make see me underwhelming so then no one cares because everyone just does it anyway and mental health is just part of everyone's day-to-day life that everyone recognizes and anyone can struggle and us going it's okay not to be okay and everyone go yeah yeah we know boring fine we know that now we've heard we've heard you guys go on and on (laughs) the thing is though society needs to start listening right so until Mm -hmm. they do will continue to be overwhelming. (laughs) Definitely. And they can listen right now to Karen speaking about her experiences, their tour and all the stuff that she has done. So this is Karen. Okay, and why did you want to get involved? For me, I think in my career and in life in general, I've seen and heard a lot of things which have given me an idea of how significant the issue of mental health stigma is and the impact that has in terms of you know the discrimination that flows out the back of that. I, and that goes from you know being in school myself and having experienced how people reacted to uh, me having a mental illness um, right through to workplaces and things and I was often my role often sat within an HR function and I wasn't someone who drew attention to the fact I had had, uh, mental health problems and that I managed those throughout my life. Uh, uh, But I would hear and see a lot of things that made me feel it was very unsafe to actually be open about it. And that's been what's driven me very much. And that's why I'm much more interested in the mental health stigma side of things than mental well-being in its broadest sense and, and mental health more generally. So with your own experiences kind of from school, from work, from these sorts of things, was there anything in particular that you really wanted to change? I think for me, I, oh, I experienced a lot of self-stigma which basically then is the reflection back, I suppose, of the things I've seen and heard others saying. So it's, it's that kind of uh, what I've taken on board from what I've picked up other people think about me because if, when they learn there's a mental illness there. So when I was at school with clinical depression, uh, one of my friend's parents saying, stay away from her, she'll be trouble. So then picking up on that idea of stigma by association that her mum thought if she had anything to do with me, other people would look at her differently because she knew someone with clinical depression. Um, so I was seeing all these different facets. At university, I was advised by a tutor to be very careful that in the legal profession it would be very difficult for me if people found out I had experienced depression, that I wouldn't be taken seriously, that I wouldn't be able to progress. So I'd had a lot of warnings. And, and the thing for me is about changing that so other people don't experience that. Those early experiences have influenced a lot in my life about how open or not I have chosen to be. And I had opportunities to role model and still carry a lot of guilt for not doing it at times in my career. Um, But those experiences really, there are a lot of memories around some of that, that it's not safe. It wasn't safe. And working in HR departments in numerous different organisations over the years, things I had seen or heard, often at very senior levels, not deliberate, not consciously trying to discriminate against any particular group or or anything like that, but unwittingly the the discrimination that existed for people with mental illness um, reinforced that it wasn't safe. It wasn't safe to come out about your mental ill health, you know, that that just wasn't safe uh, because your career could be stopped. And was there anything in particular, so there's a lot of mental health charities and organisations, CME is the one that's kind of solely focused on stigma discrimination yeah. in Scotland, but was there anything in particular about what you were hearing from CME or the messages or how the programme was approaching things that made you think that that was the right place for you to make the change you wanted to see? I think 
The first thing and the most important thing was it was the focus on stigma and discrimination. Um, because it's it's the stigma that has impacted my life the most, I suppose. Not even necessarily in terms of how other people have treated me, because often they haven't known. And I would like to think that through most of my life it was quite well masked a lot of the time and, and, and managed. Um, so I would like to think that many people uh, didn't know the things that you, you have kind of dealt with over the last 30 odd years or whatever. At the same time, I, that though in terms of how I had picked up and that, as I say, that self-stigma has had a huge impact on me and uh, how much I've been able to show of myself. I also have physical health problems, so I have multiple sclerosis and I have no problem <laughs> telling people about that whatsoever because I never felt I'd be judged for that, whereas I always thought I'd be judged for, for my mental health. So the stigma was, was the key thing. But alongside that, when I looked at CME, I mean, I'd signed up to the newsletters and things partly because I liked the approach that was taken and some of the campaigns. So, um, you know, asking, are you okay, that the workplace kind of piece, the, the video that was out, are you okay, and the power of okay, that for me uh, resonated a lot. I like the quirky nature, I like the humour. I don't, I think humour is a good way to approach difficult subjects. Um, and I certainly think there are stand-up comedy acts in <laughs> living with MS or mental ill health or whatever else it is. And to me, humour is, is a way to get through that and also often break down the barriers to help people to open up about things that are difficult or uncomfortable uh, and not maybe feel so threatened, raise their awareness about um, perhaps preconceived ideas they may have and how that could lead to discrimination without them feeling attacked. Because there's often that thing where people just feel you're attacking them. Did you expect that when you started volunteering, you said names challenge discrimination, did you expect to meet a g people who you had become quite close with? Was that a I suppose I, I knew that that was always a potential because, you know, people like people like them. So if, if you've got a common goal in mind and a common purpose and you all have a belief in something there's there's a common connection to start off with um how we go about it might be different and, and how we process it might be different so i know that's always a possibility i suppose it, i never set out to get to know people and, and and become close to people that wasn't ever it, it wasn't if you like a a side benefit I thought I would have per se. It didn't matter to me one way or the other, really, just by the nature of the person that I am. Uh, it, but it has been, yes, a welcome bonus. Um, certainly in terms of meeting others as well who maybe have similar struggles at times with their mental health and not necessarily having known people with the same issues as me in the past. Uh, that's been great because I've found people where I've almost got on the side of it a friend who is also a safe space in terms of talking about aspects of my own mental health that maybe those around me, family, other friends don't understand in the same way or it feels too difficult to explain um, or it's just a bit like with multiple sclerosis explaining some symptoms that's too far outside someone else's experience for it to actually mean anything to them so I could go turn myself blue in the face trying to explain it and they'll still never actually know what it feels like. And it's the same with certain mental health symptoms as well. Um, and so having a friend or friends like that is a, is a huge bonus that came out of the back of the programme. Um, so what have some of the highlights been of your volunteering with Simi? Oh wow. A, there's, there's lots of things. I, I think for me, in a roundabout way, and it kind of underlines everything I suppose, is being able to find ways to volunteer that work for me as a person. And that's both in terms of fitting with my, my way of kind of interacting with the world, to, to put it in a kind of straightforward way I suppose, uh, but also being able to manage my health around that, so that's both mental and physical. So that, you know, if, if I'm struggling, say my MS was causing particular problems, I can pull back from volunteering sort of things. So there was that accommodation in it and getting the confidence that that was okay. 
but the types of things I do also tend to be kind of slightly different to to others and what I'm interested in particularly is the long-term culture change that's the area my career focused in on so I'm not thinking of see me as something where within a year we'll achieve this within it's within 20 years we'll get to this within 30 years you might get to it. it's generational and that's how I used to plan for my own work in organizations there always was a minimum of a five-year plan to a ten-year plan to to make the changes we were looking to make because the culture shift is that gradual. So for me, the highlights have been those things where I can be involved in strategy development and things that I think will have a long-term influence on society. And it's the buzz I get is also when I see connections and I can connect up things, whether it's within CME or outside or into other things that are going on in society, um, or identify risks. And anyone that works with me at CME knows my brain is wired to identify risks. There's <laughs> a lot of nodding behind the cameras. Yes, it, it, which, working with people in the past, probably was hugely frustrating for people who used to work with me um, because it can be misconstrued. And this is back to that thing with prejudice and, and having those strong um, autistic traits or Asperger's or whatever. It's, you know, these are things that to me, that, that's just how I view the world. I'm not able to view it any differently. But to be somewhere where that is actually sometimes useful is great. <laughs> so I was going to ask big from what you said there, really like the way that you like think and work mm. is very strategy focused and think about risk and all the things. Do you feel that volunteering with CME has actually allowed you to really use the, the skills that you've got and use and put your personality into making the change in the way that, that you feel you are valued? Yeah. I. It was, it's been interesting because there have been a couple of times where I've gone away and actually gone home and said, oh, someone said thank you so much for being like that <laughs> um, when I was in a meeting at CME. And, and I'm not used to that. Um, I'm used to being seen more of as a problem. <laughs> uh, I do remember someone saying to me, you know, you know, only wheel Karen out to do the statistics and the facts and the data and the academic bit and then wheel her away again. Don't leave her socialising with people for too long. Um, because you'll bore them to death with the detail, you know, partly because the detail, and I get passionate, and if I'm interested, I'll never stop talking and go on and on. Um, but to feel that sometimes people value that is is almost like a new experience for me, and that made me feel good about aspects of who I am that I don't have any choice about. It, you know, I'm born that way. I have I have no option with that. But it made me feel good about those those things, and th they were seen as valuable skills, and I'd not experienced that ever before volunteering with CME. But I hadn't realised how significant not that never having been valued was until someone valued it. If that makes sense. So, um, I spent a lot of my time feeling like it was an irritation to people rather than it being seen as helpful, whereas to me that didn't make sense, because logically it was a very helpful thing to be able to see where things could fall down. Okay, Karen, so yeah, as we were chatting there about um, getting you out to socialise, you <laughs> and Susie have done the most yeah. social thing, I think, of any of our volunteers. So I guess just in a real open sense, like, like we'll start off, where did the idea, what, what is the time to talk to or happen, where did the idea come from? It was one of those moments where in a, in enthusiasm and as I do when I get an idea and I get a bit enthusiastic I just started doing it and, and talking to people about it and it ended up that Suzanne and I were available at the time to do this so the time to talk to her basically became a way to go around the country a road trip to highlight the fact that time to talk day was coming up so if you like it's it's a precursor it, it advertises the days coming out and encourages people to get involved at the same time fulfilling what Time to Talk Day is about all along anyway, which is getting out there and talking about mental health and encouraging others to do the same. We work very well as a team, Suzanne and I. Suzanne is huge heart, um, the queen of kindness. She is out and, and talks to everybody. Might be incredibly difficult for her to do, but she is great at doing it and nobody would ever know. Nobody else would, uh, would ever know. Um, she is great at doing that, but she's out like challenge Annika running out the car and things. I often sit in the car and do a bit of social media, 
So we play to the strength. So it's it's been one of those things with the Times Talk Tour where it it's kind of going out to communities and engaging with them directly rather than just through social media, through other things, bringing Time to Talk Day to them ahead of time to get them to engage. It's something that's a joy to do because no matter how uncomfortable it is going out there and engaging with people, I'm safe because I'm with someone else who totally gets it and and knows me very well. Um, Suzanne and I have each other to decompress with. So if we're struggling with it, we, we both have someone there who... Um, can support us during the week. Time to Talk Day is beginning of February, which means we're out on the road in January, and in Scotland that often means snow. So we have had a few experiences. In the first year we were stuck um, up in the Cairngorms. Uh, in fact, no, we weren't. We were coming up through Glencoe, and we got stuck, and we were stuck for about three and a half hours. Um, just in a queue of traffic, nothing was moving. Two cars had come off the road. The roads had been shut. Um, and... I sent Suzanne out the car to do some, and I would film her, um, to stand with the board. and Because we can talk any time, anywhere. This is exactly what we should be doing. Look at this time we have. We've got nothing else to do. Um, and she approached the car in front of us, and it was a lovely group of people in that car, and they were on their way, I think, to a funeral. And so they were talking about grief and death and, and various other things. And she engaged with them and, and got talking to them and various other things. But it was a hugely impactful conversation for us. I, I, I was in the car, so not, not so directly for me, but because it showed us that even in circumstances like that, at any time, you don't know what's going on for someone else in their life. You don't know where they're at with their mental health. Um, you don't know what's happening from what they might be struggling with and how open people can be, even in those strange circumstances where people are fed up, they're stuck on the road, they're maybe the last thing they wanted was someone tapping on the window but actually that was seen as something welcome and it gave them an opportunity to share some thoughts about the person they'd lost um, that they actually said afterwards they welcomed so we have things like that we bumped into four male friends in Aberdeen who had between them I think lost four or five people to suicide and that was hugely impactful and shocking as how prevalent it is and and we know that suicide is the number one killer of men in this country under the age of 45 or I don't know if it's changed 50 sometimes you have different figures Um, but when when you're actually standing talking to people who have been touched so many times by suicide and they are so open with complete strangers they've never met uh prior to that moment, it it's very, very touching. And it shows you the power that just opening up the conversation can have, that just saying to people, look, we're talking about mental health, and they freely share all sorts of things. And they're almost, they welcome that somebody isn't afraid to just talk about mental health. Even though we're starting to hear some people say, well, everybody's talking about mental health now, so the problem must have gone away. Um, are we Are we helping people to realise that even though people are talking about the problem has not gone away, we still have a huge issue with stigma and we, we need to keep doing this and totally normalise so that we don't have to have days to let people know it's OK to talk about mental health. Um, you did get to sit down and have a discussion with Nicola Sturgeon yeah. about this issue. Um, so I don't have a specific question on that, but can you just tell us a little bit about like how that was, how it came like, well, not so much how it came about, but how was that speaking to the First Minister about something that you care about so passionately? Um, it's important in terms of um, having someone's ear around those things and knowing it, if there's a hook there for someone, something could get done. Because whether we like it or not, you know, the, the, you get the right ear. Uh, many things in life. It's, uh, it's people say they had a lucky break or whatever. You get the right year at the right time, the right person, they get an interest, and it can make all sorts of things. It can make things easier, open doors and, and get make things easier. So it, it, it was a privilege to be able to represent um, volunteers who see me and see me in Time to Talk Day. And um, I think that's what I would think with, with meeting with Nicola Sturgeon, uh, that 
my biggest thing was about what does this do for CME and our long term. It's back to that thing of it's it's the long term. It's not about what's happening. And even the time to talk to her, it's not about what's happening this time to talk day. It's about how does this impact? Okay, short term is that, and that's the immediacy. But what's the roll-on effect of that a year down the line, two years down the line, five years down the line? Um, is there something that we say today with Nicolette or something that comes up in the conversation that sparks an idea for someone that possibly makes its way into policy further down the line? Or that, you know, when maybe, I don't know, Nicola's reading through something in the future, a white paper or something, she sees something, it triggers a memory back to that conversation. It could could have a significant effect for society. And those are the things that matter to me. It's it's the roll-on and the ripple and the... It's not about me ever as an individual, it's about that bigger picture. Do you feel like you can, like you are empowered and have a sense of worth because you're using your talents? Yeah, well, I think the thing with the CME volunteering as well came along at a time where there were big changes going on in my own life. So my health, my physical health was deteriorating, multiple sclerosis is progressive. Um, can go any which way, may or may not, you know, and I've, I've seen both extremes within my own family and, and historically. Um, but things were changing in big ways and I, my self-worth would have been particularly low at the time <laughs> uh, because of that, because I was feeling less and less was I able to do what I used to do and um, w when you... <laughs> when fatigue hits and you're needing to have afternoon naps and you feel like you're in your 90s when you're actually only in your 40s, this feels not right, or some of the other issues that come with MS, which I'll not discuss. So the sorts of problems you can have that are changing your life. And to be able to take, for someone to value the skills that I'd built up over a career and the way my mind works and the way I, I see things, and to be able to use those skills so suddenly I wasn't worthless in society's mind that there was something that I could use, okay, I might not be able to you know, function away with, with my health to go out and be involved full time doing bits and pieces or know when I can do things and know when I can't because it's not predictable. But to be able to contribute at the times when I am able to uh, and use those skills, that makes a big difference in feeling worthwhile and that you're giving something back that you're contributing in some way, that you, you're playing your part, and that's a huge thing. In some ways, the volunteering has kind of helped me to, at a time when there was so much change going on with, with changes to, to my physical capacity in that sense, it, it's helped me to, to learn where my limits are around bits and pieces. Um, which is one of the reasons the time to talk to her is great because for me, other people do personal challenges like climbing Kilimanjaro or Mount Everest or something. To me, touring around the country for a week is, <laughs> is a major challenge but it, and it's a personal achievement in that sense above and beyond anything else that goes on. Um, at the same time I'm very grateful to see me for the fact that you know the, the, the one thing that ha concerns me and it's around you know with, with stigma we talk about but unconscious bias where people might also look at, at me and the changes that she, even since I started volunteering with see me where my um, I'm now in a wheelchair now, rather than at the beginning I was crutches uh, right at the beginning and things. But my capacities have reduced physically in the time I've been volunteering. And so even with me not looking at me and going, well, she couldn't do this because, well, with the MS there's no way. And taking the decision away from me about how far I want to push myself and challenging myself and um, allowing me to decide for myself. Because I think one of the things that quite often happens with our preconceived ideas about people and with ill health, whether it's mental or physical, is in a very well-meaning way, people take decisions away from those who have the health problems to almost protect them or to, or they won't be able to do that, so we're not going to make them feel bad about it or anything else, rather than allowing the person to know their own limits or find their limits or work with them to find ways to enable them to contribute as much as they can. Um, and I think in that way, I kind of ascribe quite a lot to a social model of disability. I think we disable people, whether it's with mental health or physical health, as society we disable people by making decisions for them. Um, and one of the great things about volunteering with See Me is nobody has done that. Um, 
I know people have expressed concern <laughs> at times about, you know, and, and, and people always ask and make sure you're okay. But they trust that I will put in place my, my mechanisms to, to deal with that and that, you know, I'm sleeping for a week and I'm doing this and I'm taking that rest or I've got various things done and, and it's planned. Um, and that's really important. And because you've been able to volunteer and work and do what you feel you want to and what you can and having that decision yourself, do you feel that kind of all of that and everything that you've done that you've that you've made a difference in tackling student discrimination? I think, if I'm honest, I think these things are too early to say. I, I think things from from feedback that people have given me, having spoken to them at times, whatever, they'll, they'll tell you that it impacts on them personally. So I think, yeah, th there may be personal impact on some people. How long-lasting or short-term, I don't know, because I, I, I don't know them after that point or whatever. Um, I know that I do my best at all times, to the extent that I even drive family daft and things where I say, well, actually, see, there's an example on the television of stigma because if the way that was put or using the term committed in relation to it or talk about these things, and they'll say, oh, for goodness sake. And it's that thing of, no, but for me, letting anything go, it's, it's, not, want, it's not about trying to pursue everyone over every little thing and it's not wanting to make anyone feel bad, but it's wanting to do something educationally in a safe way um, and saying that with, with the role at CME, if I don't say anything, these things are part of our unconscious in society, they're part of the way we speak, they're part of our, our culture. The only way we'll shift the culture is by raising our own self-awareness and raising everyone's awareness around us of the fact these things actually have a detrimental impact, um, even if we, they're not obvious to us. What impact has CME had on you? It's given me a sense of purpose when I probably didn't feel I had one because my own life was changing so much because my health had changed so much um, and it I, I know that whilst I find interaction difficult at times social interaction difficult I also know it's important for mental well-being so see me gives me if you like um, <laughs> in a selfish way it gives me um, roles for having social interaction or whether that's with other volunteers or whatever it, it gives me frameworks for that so it makes it safer to do it and I know it's important that I do do it so uh, things like that um, and and see me is giving me that sense of self-worth so I think that about wraps it up for today so just to say thank you very much to Dee and to Lynn for chatting along with this date. Much appreciated. Thank you, Nick. Bye, bye, bye. Bye, we'll see you all next time. Goodbye. Bye.